I'm Pastor Mike Winger, and this is Bible Thinker, the program dedicated to thinking biblically about everything. We're going to deal with the issue tonight of the fact that prophecy is confusing. Um, It is confusing. Prophecy is probably the most challenging subject in the Bible. And let me illustrate for you, if I can. Um, I remember getting a, a tract that was that you know you go witnessing with these you hand these out and it had on it like something like 50 prophecies of Jesus on this track and I was like oh yes I love prophecy it's such perfect evidence to prove God and prove Jesus so I get this tract and before I hand it out I wanted to look into it so I check these prophecies and I go home and I open my bible and I'm looking looking up the references and I'm reading them and I go like some of these are like not things I would want someone to look up like, yo, Jesus would do this. And you have, the, you have a verse reference there. And I look up the verse and I go, nah. And I did not use that tract. Now, if I was to produce my own prophecy tract to show Jesus, it would, it would not have 300 prophecies. I would put like five. Because I'm going, here's some that are like clear in the text, that are really good for proving the Bible true. But in reality, we sometimes hear about there's 300 prophecies of Jesus. There's four, 500 prophecies of Jesus. And I'm always like, you know, I don't know if you notice this. I never say that. And here's, and tonight I'll explain why. I'll explain why, because what we don't want to do is overreact because this is what happens. Some people realize that some of these prophecies of Jesus are not so obvious, are not so clear and look like they're really about someone else when you're reading the Old Testament. And so then they think, oh, this prophecy thing is a sham. And I've even heard teachers, like professor teachers, say that prophecies basically, they just, you know, did whatever they wanted with the Old Testament. And I'm like, no, that's not true. That's the overreaction. That's false. But then there's the underreaction where we try to take every possible type or foreshadowing or, or analogy of Jesus in the Old Testament and offer it as prophetic proof for Christ. And I think that that can be a mistake. So... What's the proper reaction? The proper reaction is for us to realize this, and this is what we're going to focus on tonight, that prophecy about Jesus is is, is really on a spectrum. And Jesus is prophesied in the Old Testament in a variety of ways, in a variety of ways. And I'm going to unpack this by going through the book of Matthew and looking at multiple examples of how he uses the word fulfilled. So does that sound fun or what? That this is actually a really good way to do it. We're just surveying through Matthew. He says fulfilled. What did he mean there? He says it again here. What did it mean there? So we're going to look at that word. In the Greek, it's the word plerao, and it is just the word fulfilled. It just means in the same as the English, fulfilled. To fill it fully. That's all it means. Um, So, um, not realizing the things I'm telling you, some people abandon prophecy altogether. And this has happened a lot, even with apologists and people defending the faith. They don't go to prophecy because they don't realize what I'm about to explain to you tonight. So I'm hoping to encourage Christians to use prophecy more and to use it more wisely. That's the idea. Not less, but to use it just more wisely. Okay, Matthew 1, verse 22. Let's look at our first example of fulfilled in the Gospel of Matthew. It says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, there's a big debate on this passage. Did it really mean virgin? Oh, there's Alma and Bethula and these different words, and I'm not going to worry about that tonight. Um, I'll summarize the end of the debate. We'll just go right to the end of the debate on that. Um, There's multiple Hebrew words here. The one that's used in the Hebrew in the Old Testament, the virgin shall conceive, it's used for a young maiden who's unmarried. Now, back then, unlike modern times, when a young maiden's unmarried, she's a virgin. That's natural. That's assumed. That's the idea. So that being said, when we look at Isaiah 7:14, here's what it says. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And we look at this and we say, clearly fulfilled in Jesus, right? Well, it may be slightly more complicated than that. And here's where we go. Put your thinking cap on as Christians. You know, this, it is more complicated. There is somewhat of a fulfillment of this in Isaiah's own time when his wife bears a son and he names the son not Emmanuel, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Say that five times fast. <laughs> um, I'm not going to get into a great de- a bunch of detail on this because we have lots of p- prophecies to cover. But this is going to be an example of what we would consider a, here's the fancy phrase for you, double fulfillment. And you might go, double fulfillment, that sounds convenient. You know, you're just going to say Jesus, oh, it was fulfilled then and Jesus fulfilled it again. Rather, double fulfillment is more like um, 
when something's not really totally fulfilled, like, like, so here's a prophecy. Virgin conceive, bear a son, his name will be called Emmanuel. Isaiah's wife conceives, bears a son, they call him Maharshal al-Hashbaz. <laughs> then it just invokes laughter, just the name itself. That's interesting. Uh, I don't know, I just, I'm good at names sometimes. Not other times, apparently. Um, but anyhow, th- this was not really totally fulfilled. He was never called Emmanuel. And she wasn't really a virgin. So what, how, how exactly is this fulfilled? And that's what double fulfillment is. Double fulfillment is like this. Here comes the prophecy. Here's an insufficient fulfillment. This really doesn't do the job. The prophecy is still hanging in the air. And then Jesus comes and he fulfills it completely. So this is, in other words, it's really about Jesus. And what happened at the, at the contemporary time was, was to say, hey, there's more. Hey, it's hanging in the air because there's more. So the phrase is, again, double fulfillment. Um, now, when you get into Isaiah 9 and we read about this child who will be a light, we'll come back to this in a minute, and this child will be born, his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, and um, he's going to have the government upon his shoulders and all this stuff. This is clearly not about Mahershal al-Hashbaz. This is clearly, this child of Isaiah is talking about some future greater messianic king. So, Truly fulfilled in Jesus. Um, That's one example. And this is not a verse I generally use when witnessing. And here's two reasons. One, I have no evidence that Jesus was virgin born. Do you? (laughs) Like, no. I know this because of the truth of Christ. I have evidence he was resurrected. The evidence for the resurrection gives me great reason to believe that the virgin birth is a reality. The, The miracles he does. There's various reasons to believe that he was virgin born. But all those reasons require other evidences so I'm going to focus on those evidences. So in my witnessing, I don't go to this passage. It's, it's just making my job harder instead of easier. Um, so let's look at another example. That's a double fulfillment example. In Matthew 2, verse 3, we get um, another example of prophecy uh, being fulfilled. The word fulfillment's not here, but I, I bring this up for a, for a point. I'll, I'll share with you in a second. This is an example of... One-to-one, this was always about Messiah. Jesus came. He totally fulfilled it. It was only ever applied to him. This is, a, this is what we normally think of when we think fulfilled prophecy, right? Jesus fulfilled prophecy. This is what we usually think of. Matthew 2, 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him, troubled about this Messiah, the supposed king of Israel born. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and they quote Micah 5.2. Look at this. They're, they're deducing where Jesus was born based upon Old Testament prophecy. And they say, uh, Micah 5.2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now, what's interesting about this is some would go, well, this is just... You know, Matthew's putting these words in the mouths of the scribes and Pharisees. They didn't really say that. That is what the skeptic would say at this point, Mike. That's very convenient. But that's what Matthew said they said. But even the most ancient Jewish commentaries we have, the Targum, which it's called the Targum, right? Most ancient Jewish commentaries we have on Micah 5.2. What does it say Micah 5.2 is about? The Messiah. So even the, these are non-Christian Jewish commentaries. And they say that Micah 5.2 is about the Messiah. So there's an example there of just a straight one-to-one fulfillment. We expect the Messiah to be born in Bethlehem. Jesus is born in Bethlehem. Just plain and simple. Uh, That's what we normally think of when we say fulfilled prophecy. Let's look at another example. Matthew 3.15. It says, But then Jesus answered him, Let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. What's happening in this passage? Jesus is being baptized. And John's like, Jesus, you should baptize me. Like, I'm the sinner. You're the sinless one. Why are, why are you coming to me? And Jesus tells him why. He says, it's fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. It's interesting that Jesus, uh, um, at his baptism, he refers to the acts he's taking. It's not, to, it's not repentance. Jesus is not repenting of anything. He's doing this to do, to do what's righteous, to fulfill righteousness. Now, this is not a prophetic statement at all, is it? Why do I bring this up? Because I want you to remember the word fulfill just means fulfill. To fill it fully. That's all it means. And sometimes we're like, the scriptures were fulfilled. We take this to be a technical term that means like a one-to-one fulfillment. Clear messianic prophecy, clear fulfillment by Jesus. Sometimes 
the word is used in other varieties of ways. So we'll keep going. And right now, remember these points. I'm kind of trying to give you now examples on the spectrum of how scripture is fulfilled in a variety of ways. So Matthew 4.14, Matthew 4.14, it says, so that what was spoken by Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Fulfilled. So there's that word fulfilled used in that context. Let me back up a little bit to verse 12 and we'll get the overall flow of the passage so we can understand it better. How this speaks of Isaiah being fulfilled in Jesus. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. And here's the quote from Isaiah. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by uh, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So let's, if you like, you can turn to Isaiah 9. That, that's the passage that's being quoted here. And I'm going to read that to you as well. Um, the context of Isaiah 9 is that there is this future light for the people of Israel. This light will come to the people of Israel. And the light is described here in this is Isaiah 9 verses 1 and 2. And then we're going to keep reading in Isaiah because you'll see how this is connected to another prophecy of Jesus. For to us a child is born. To us, oh, excuse me, I'm sorry, I jumped ahead. Isaiah 9, verse 1. Uh, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. And now, let me pause there. The former time is um, the people of Israel would be deported. And non-Israelis, non-Jewish people would be, t- would be coming into the land and inhabiting it, right? They're going to be deported. This is what Isaiah keeps prophesying about. You guys, your land's going to be taken away. And so the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, they'll be in contempt. But in the latter time, the latter time, some future time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or the Goyim of the Gentiles. That's what that word is. Um, Galilee of the Gentiles. Now to, to a Jewish person calling Galilee, this Jewish land, calling it Galilee of the Gentiles, is speaking of the fact that they'd be deported and then the Gentiles would come into the land. And so God's like, even though you see it now covered with Gentiles, you've lost your promised land, yet there will be a future time of restoration. And then it says about that future time, verse 2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in, dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. A light has shone. So there's this great future light coming. This is just about Messiah. This is another one that's really like one-to-one fulfillment. So we have in Micah, he's born in Bethlehem. We have in Isaiah, he's going to be like showing up publicly to the people of Israel in Galilee, in that area. But if you keep reading in Isaiah, it gets better. So Isaiah 9, 6 has this about the same context, this light that will come. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Now there's, there's actually a second century commentary on this passage uh, in the Targum, uh, Targum Isaiah. Um, tar- uh, by the way, a Targum is basically what a, a, when a Jew's reading, you know how you have a study Bible? It has like notes with the text. This, the Targum is like an old Jewish study Bible. And so it's like official rabbinic. This is pretty official stuff. If you're a rabbinic Jew, it means a lot when something's in the Targum. Um, and so this is what it says. And, and what they do is they would have the text with like help for you. They would interpret the text right in the text. So I'll give you an example. Here's how what they read on this Isaiah 9 passage um, in the Targum. The prophet said to the house of David, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and he has taken the law upon himself to keep it. Isn't that interesting? This sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? He takes the law upon himself to keep it. He's going to obey the law. Jesus did that. His name is called from eternity, wonderful, the mighty God who liveth to eternity, the Messiah, whose peace shall be great upon upon, us. upon us in his days. So the Targum specifically says this child is the Messiah who will obey the law. He will keep the law of Israel. 
Yeah, yeah, and and it, and it seems to identify him as as God. Um, what am I saying? I'm saying these are the, the targum again, written by Jews who were not followers of Jesus, who were aware probably of him, but have rejected him, and they see this as messianic. So this is again Matthew four. This what was spoken of the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Matthew four fourteen. This is like another one to one, like really clear. This is definitely about Jesus, and this gives us more reason to think the child in Isaiah seven is actually fully talking about the child in Isaiah 9. Isaiah, same guy, offering more prophecies, you know, explaining it in more detail. So this is direct fulfillment. But note the, the nature of the original, right? It's given in the context of speaking of current events of the time. Isaiah is speaking about current events, right? But it's clearly about something bigger and better than the current events of Isaiah's time. So um, this is a legitimate passage, Isaiah 7 and 9, together for what we again call double fulfillment, or someone would, would just say, no, no, there's no double here. Like, this is just fulfilled in Jesus, and there's no double sense to it at all. And I would say it's definitely one of those two. Clearly one of those two. Um, now, let's look at another word fulfilled for Matthew 5.17. Matthew 5.17, it says, Do not think, Jesus speaking, that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. To fill them up fully. That's the idea. Now, this is unique because now we have Jesus and he, he's not saying, I'm doing this one thing to fulfill this one thing. Rather, he's saying my ministry or what I'm doing right now is to fulfill and he just encompasses the entire Hebrew Bible. I'm going to fill it all up fully. I'm going to fulfill this thing. And that's pretty um, wonderful to me, actually. This is just simple observation, right? The law and the prophets, the law and the prophets are not clearly predicting Jesus. Did you notice that? There's passages in the Law and Prophets that clearly predict Messiah, but there's other passages that don't. In fact, the law in general doesn't speak very specifically about Messiah. It says what you should do and shouldn't do. That's what it does. And Jesus is like, look, I'm not only fulfilling the prophets, I'm going to fulfill the law. He's like, I'm going to fulfill all of that stuff. This is, um, I think, as I said in the beginning of this series, Jesus in the Old Testament, um, and, and I'll, I'll put uh, in this, if anybody's watching the video, I'll put in this video description a link that will allow you to see the entire series playlist because there's a lot more to this that you're going to want to know about. This is just one study. Um, but the thing is that this concept of Jesus in the Old Testament is way more central to the Bible than we often realize because we're so used to just studying pieces of the Bible. And Jesus is giving us a scope of the whole scriptures. So... Um, there's a difference, and I'll point this out now that hopefully this makes sense. There's a difference between fulfilled scripture and fulfilled predictions. When we say fulfilled prophecy, we're often thinking of fulfilled predictions. And that's fair. That's good. We like that, right? But the Bible's not all predictive, but the Bible is all fulfilled in Jesus. So there's places where prophetic things are going on that are not exactly specifically fulfilled with clear fulfillments, but there's this other sense this more, I don't know, um, artistic sense in which Jesus did fulfill that thing. So we'll get into more examples of that stuff now. Um, or will we? Let's see, Matthew eight sixteen. That's the next one. We'll see what this one is. I'm trying to remember which one's next. <clears throat> Matthew eight sixteen. All right, Matthew eight sixteen. It says, that evening... They brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Interpretation, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Okay, this is actually, this is again another pretty straightforward one-to-one -one correlation here. The Isaiah passage is Isaiah 53. In case you didn't notice it, which probably a lot of you did, right? Isaiah 53 verse 4, surely he's borne our griefs. He... Uh, and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Um, we, we are looking at the passage in Isaiah that is probably one of the most beautiful messianic passages in the entire Bible. It's one of my favorite chapters of scripture, period. Love it dearly. Um, and it was ultimately, interestingly, it was ultimately fulfilled on the cross, but Matthew applies it to Jesus just going around healing people. See, Jesus is just healing people, just going in his day healing people. This relates to the cross, but it relates to his whole ministry of healing. Healing the sick, 
the healing the torments, healing us from the torments of the enemy, cast out demons, remember? Um, and then ultimately the sin that brings all those things on. Because illness and the torments of Satan, these are all connected to sin. That's that's like that was the door that opened that brought it all on. Jesus, he deals with all of that stuff. Um, some would say, you know, there's healing in the atonement. And that's actually a really important theology point for the people that are sort of hyper healing movements. But then there's the other side where they go, oh, no, the atonement's not about healing. It's just about forgiveness of sins. And I'm like, well, no, it's obviously about both forgiveness of sins and physical healing. They are, they are in the atonement in on the cross. But our problem is we expect to experience all of that right now, or at least parts of it. Like I'm always confused as a, someone who thinks everyone should be healed today, right now in Jesus's name, but they still expect people to die. We're like, wait a minute. If every effect of the atonement is being experienced right now, then I'm never going to die. Right? So, but I'm, so the atonement's been paid. Any healing is an example of what Jesus purchased on the cross. But that doesn't mean you'll get healing right now. But it's promised for the future. It's sadly, it's more complicated than that. <laughs> Unfortunately, right? Um, so let's um, look at another one. <clears throat> Matthew twelve verse seventeen. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. This is going to be another another fulfill passage, and it's going to be another kind of one to one correlation. And pretty soon, I'm going to get into ones where you're going to scratch your head a little bit, and you're going to be like. That's, that doesn't seem like, like, how is that in the passage? And we'll cover that in a moment. But let's get the context of Matthew 12, verse 13. Uh, Jesus is doing a healing, and it's on the Sabbath. He goes into the synagogue, and he's already been debating them on what is or isn't appropriate to do on the Sabbath. And then it says in verse 13, Then he said to the man, there's a man there is a withered hand, and he says, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched out his hand, and it was restored, healthy like the other one. But the Pharisees went and conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and ordered them not to make him known. Interesting. Notice this. So he heals a guy on the Sabbath. People plot against him. What could Jesus do to people who are plotting against him? What do you think? Whatever they, whatever he wants. He's like, you're dead meat. Like, then they just are dead meat. Like, he could do whatever he wants. But instead, he withdraws from them. People follow. He heals the people that follow him. And he tells them, don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone what I've been doing for you. Then in verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. And here's the quote. Behold my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory and in his name the Gentiles will hope. Now this is from Isaiah chapter 42 verses 1 through 3. That's what we just heard Matthew quote. And this can be confusing because Isaiah 42 has several like my servant passages. And these, some of them are very clearly about Jesus and others. It's like, was that about Israel? And this is one of the passages where you you look at it in Isaiah 42 and you go, is that about Israel or is that about Jesus? In some sense, it could be about Israel, but in a fuller sense, it seems to be about Jesus. You might call that double fulfillment. But here's where I, I want us to recognize this. A passage like this while truly about Jesus, is not as useful in witnessing because it's more complicated. And let's be honest, when you're sharing the truth of of Christ with a new person, it's better to not use the complicated stuff. It's better to give them what they can handle, what they can understand, what they can grab. And um, um, the ultimate promise here is, is, is about the Messiah. And there's a sense in which Israel becomes a picture of the Messiah. Right? A lot of the things Israel goes through, Jesus ends up fulfilling that in other ways. And so here's where I go, even if it is about Israel, it could be, in a typological sense, about Messiah. And now we move into a whole different place on the spectrum. We're not one-to-one fulfillment here. We're like typological. We're over here. This is, this is much more literary and conceptually and God's drawing out. Um, it's like, you know, when you, when you hear a a movie or a, a TV show where they have a motif, a certain musical note that plays whenever a certain character or idea is happening on screen. And, it, and, and if, you know, if you were telling your friend, oh, that, that motif represents such and such, and they might argue with you, well, where does it clearly say that in the movie? And you're like, well, no, you get this from watching the movie and carefully looking at it. You know? And this is sometimes the case for Jesus in the Old Testament. This is the motif. You know, I hear the redemption motif 
being played in the background in this passage. I'm not going to use that to witness to someone, but I will certainly use it for theology. I will certainly use it to understand what God has given us in his word better. And um, I think that that's an important thing. So what's the motif or the connection here? There's specific connections um, in this Matthew 12 passage. He quotes from Isaiah 42, as I said. There's a passage in Isaiah 42, 6, a few verses later, that really gives you some, some more clarity that Isaiah 42 is about the Messiah because it says, uh, Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness, I will take you by the hand and keep you, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. Now, some would say Israel is the covenant for the people. And see, I would kind of agree with that. I would say, yes, Israel, in a sense, is the covenant for the people. But Israel labors in birth pains to bring forth the Messiah, who is the fulfillment of the covenant for the people. So in that sense, Israel and Messiah, that's the whole point of Israel, isn't it? Messiah. That was the point. Is God was bringing the Messiah out of Israel. Um, but what's the nature of the connection between what Jesus did, healing that man, and what happens in Isaiah 42? Well, let me give you some specific points of correspondence. Okay, So in verse 13, um, Jesus tells the man to stretch out your hand in Matthew 12. And in Isaiah 42, it specifically said that my spirit will be upon him. Now, the healings were specifically to show that God's Holy Spirit was upon Christ, that Christ was healing by the Spirit of God. And he actually debates with people about that, about how he healed by the Spirit of God. Um, he also, uh, in verse 15, he orders them not to make it known. And Isaiah, the passage quoted, it says he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will he let anyone hear his voice in the streets. doesn't mean he'll be mute, but he's not going to lead a giant rebellion. He's not going to go out saying, come and follow me, follow me, follow me, like in that loudness sense. Instead, he goes and he heals people, and then he's like, I'm not starting a rebellion. You know, I just healed you to heal you, to show you who I am. But, but he has this quietness to it, this sort of non-confrontational nature. Um, and if, you, if we're honest about it, if Jesus was confrontational in his first coming, he would have struck them dead. Like, they would have been struck down. Like, he just talked to them. This is like the nicest version of Jesus you're going to get. Is he just talks to you and heals you and tells you to change your ways. Like, that's very kind of him. Um, so he didn't strike the fools down when they challenged him and plotted to destroy him. So my conclusion would be this passage is connected to the events in um, Matthew 12 because Jesus is healing by the Spirit, yet he's showing the mildness of hiding it from public, public proclamation, and he's not attacking and destroying his enemies. He's not breaking the, the, the bruised uh, reed or putting out the wick. He's not doing those things. Further, Jesus' whole ministry fulfills this Isaiah passage. And maybe Matthew is just taking one event and saying, here's a sample. It was to fulfill Isaiah, yet Jesus goes on and his whole ministry keeps fulfilling this thing. He keeps doing this thing over and over again. So this is a passage, again, for theology, not a here's proof for who Jesus is passage. It's more of an understanding who he is. And Matthew does this. And the New Testament does this. Sometimes it's proving who Messiah is. Other times it's just explaining who Messiah is. And both are very important. All right, let's look at another one. If I haven't confused you yet. Matthew 13, 35. It says, This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Let me read. Matthew 13, 34 as well. So all these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. He always used parables whenever he taught. Now, some people go, Jesus used stories because stories communicate to people and people like stories. Well, the Bible actually interprets why Jesus used a lot of his stories and they were not, they were sometimes to confuse people. Like that's, the, the, I have a whole study on God hardening people's hearts and why that was. But some of those parables he told were to create confusion in some people, and clarity in other people. And it was a way of God judging the people. Um, but the Old Testament passage being quoted is in Psalm 78 too. It says, I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old. Now, Matthew, he quotes his almost, his quote's almost identical to the Septuagint. Um, a side note, as I was studying this, I was looking into Matthew, how he quotes, is he quoting the Septuagint or the Masoretic? Like what version of the Old Testament manuscripts is he using? Matthew would oftentimes have the Septuagint, it looks, he'd have the Septuagint and the Hebrew, and he'd look at them, and he would improve their translations. He did a really good job of it. It's actually really interesting what he did with it. So, side note. Um, so, Psalm 78, this is a passage where you go, how is, this, how is this psalm about the Messiah? Like, you read the whole psalm. Go, it's, we're not going to do it tonight. It's 72 verses long. It's a very long psalm. 
But you'll read through it and you go, how is this about Messiah? It's not, it doesn't seem clearly about Messiah. And I'll say it's not clearly about Messiah. And here's where someone would say, see, Matthew just willy-nilly, he just grabbed whatever Old Testament verse he wanted, and he just threw it there and pretended it was about Jesus. The truth is Matthew's way smarter than that. And the application to Jesus is way more intelligent than that. And some people, upon casually looking at, say, Psalm 78 and going, I don't see how that's about Messiah, they throw out the Bible. And because they didn't understand it, they figured there was nothing, that, there, was nothing there to find. Well, let's look at Psalm 78 verses 1 through 4. And let's see how this relates to what Jesus did. It's actually pretty cool. Psalm 78, 1 through 4. Give ear, O my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done. Now, there's specific things that they're going to communicate in Psalm 78. And it goes on through the 72 verses, and he recounts the law and specific miracles of God, many of which are very much typological of Jesus. So he recounts the law and the miracles that God has done in Israel's history. What blows me away is Psalm 78 refers to these things as dark sayings and like riddles. And he's like, hey, that law and the miracles God's done for you, they're riddles, they're parables. There's hidden truths that are in them. And so Matthew quotes this, which is kind of like a Jesus in the Old Testament verse. He quotes this to say that Jesus is continuing the same thing God has done. He's embedded these truths in these complicated, mysterious ways, sometimes clear, sometimes unclear. And Jesus is doing the same thing in his public teaching, bringing parables as well as sometimes just very clear things. Um, in other words, Matthew's use of the Psalms here is just more complicated than people realize at first glance. And then they think he has no reason to quote it. Um, if you ever get that impression, like the Bible is just quoting the Old Testament for no reason, you just don't know the Old Testament very well. Just be honest with yourself, right? There's plenty of passages you don't understand that well. And it's your understanding that's the problem here, which is to me very good news. So Jesus speaking in parables is consistent with two things. One, the fact that God's interaction with Israel was often misunderstood and rejected and two, that the whole Old Testament is a mystery that reveals Christ. It's consistent with those things. So it's actually really cool. It's not a one-to-one -one prophecy. Instead, it's more like Jesus is the resolution to the hanging note. <laughs> you know, like the Old Testament plays all these hanging notes. You know, in music, you, you can, I, I don't have my guitar on me, but you can, you can play and you can lead people up with certain notes and then you can just walk away and they're like, wait, finish the song. You know, there's, you need to resolve. Jesus is the resolve and the scriptures in the Old Testament leave all these hanging notes and uh, Jesus resolves those things. All right, let's look at another example. Matthew 13, 48. This is a simple example. It doesn't have anything to do with prophecy. It says, when it was full, the net full of fish, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. This is just a net full of fish. Now, the word is, you know, the same word, plerao, right? It just means to fill it fully. So the net, was it halfway full? No. Two-thirds? No. It was full. It was absolutely full. The, the, my point here is, when we look at the scriptures of the Old Testament and we see this word about Jesus, he fulfilled, he fulfilled, fulfilled. He, he gave the final meaning and the final climactic sense to all the prophecies and the, and, the, and the clear and the unclear, the mysteries and the direct ones, all of the above. All right, let's go to Matthew 21. We're already in chapter 21, so we're zooming through. Matthew 21, this is Palm Sunday. This is when Jesus enters in to Jerusalem on a donkey. Um, and here we read about it in verse 4. It says, This took place <clears throat> to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a beast of burden. This is from Zechariah 9.9. 9. Zechariah 9.9. 9. And this is, um, a, this is a clear one-to-one -one example. Now, you notice how Matthew, he'll say fulfilled, and one, it's like this, this sort of vague, like, typological, analogical, and, and then he uses fulfilled, and it's like this clear, Jesus, what does it mean? It means he entered Jerusalem on a donkey. Like, that's what it means. Um, that's Zechariah 9.9. 9. And some say, uh, I've heard people complain, well, Jesus did that on purpose. Like, I'm just saying, Jesus is God in the flesh, like, everything was on purpose. <laughs> 
Yes, it was all on purpose, including where he was born, when he was born, even, even the enemies doing what they did to him. He did that on purpose. Um, of course, it was on purpose. Um, and that's to be expected. But the meaning goes a little deeper because Zechariah 9.9 never explains it. It just says he's going to come. He's going to come on lowly. Your king is coming to you lowly, sitting on a colt on the foal of a, of a donkey or whatever the, 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 term, the phrasing is there. Um, mounted on a donkey. The, um, the meaning here is it's a beast of burden, a humble beast of burden. And Jesus comes humbly to bear our burdens. Whereas the Jews, one of their biggest stumbling blocks is they expected the Messiah to come triumphantly in his first coming. So they were confused about the suffering passages and how to, court, how to relate those to the, to the ruling and reigning passages. They even came up with two messiahs. Messiah, son of Joseph, and he dies. Messiah, son of David, and he's the one that reigns. And some people believe that because they were wrestling with how to understand this. And of course, it makes sense in Jesus and only in Jesus. All right, let's look at another passage, Matthew 23, 32. Matthew 23, 32. He says, fill up then the measure of your fathers. And this, that's this word fill up or fulfill. Um, let's look at the context. Jesus speaking it here, and he does speak it in a prophetic sense. And it's very interesting. Matthew 23, 29. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in the shedding of the blood of the prophets. This is interesting, right? They'll have a tomb to commemorate Isaiah or some, some of the great prophets of old. And they say, our fathers rejected Isaiah. They rejected Jeremiah. They wouldn't listen to these prophets. But we wouldn't. We would, we would do better. We would have honored them. And so, he, so Jesus is pointing this out. And he says in verse 31, Thus you witness against yourselves. And here's, the, what, here's what they're really saying about themselves. You are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. That's not so good, you know, and, and this has been, this has been Israel, your repeated pattern is rejecting God's prophets. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of your fathers, finish it off, finish it off. You're, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore, I send you prophets and wise men and scribes and some of whom you will kill and crucify and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of the from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah the son of Berechiah whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar side note Abel's the first martyr in the bible um, Zechariah is the final martyr chronologically in the bible and there's other people who were considered like martyrs that were in the intertestamental period Jesus doesn't mention them he mentions the first and last in the Hebrew Bible. Like, kind of, in other words, it's sort of a subtle way of Jesus affirming the Old Testament texts about Abel and, and Zechariah and these different Old Testament characters and not including anything that came later. Just a side note. Um, I think it's kind of cool. So they're going to they're gonna experience the fullness of this. They're going to fill up or finish, finish it up. Why? Because your father's rejected the prophets and you're rejecting the Messiah. Truly I say to you, verse 36, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So the, the point I see is, lots of points, but one of them is that the rejection of Jesus is like the ultimate rejection, the crowning rejection, and it fills up the measure of the father's guilt. You rejected the prophets, and then finally you rejected the one they prophesied about. So it's, in other words, when Matthew has Jesus saying this, as Jesus truly did, it's, it's not like, oh, that's a wrong use of scripture. Rather, it's just way smarter than you probably know if you're very unacquainted with the Bible. And so in studying prophecy, some people stumble because they know so little about the Bible, they can't see how that is, in fact, prophetic. And that actually becomes a problem. In Matthew 26, we'll go to, uh, we have just two more for tonight. Matthew 26, verse 50. The word fulfilled is used twice in this passage. I'm going to read verse 50 through 56. It says, Jesus said to him, friend, do what you came to do. Anybody know where we're at now? This is the garden, right? The friend here is Judas. Judas. 
Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Remember who that is? That would be Peter. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Now that might actually be quoting from Isaiah as well, interestingly, but we don't have enough time for that tonight. So verse 53, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus's betrayal his crucifixion, all of what was happening was going to fulfill scripture according to Jesus. And at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. I can imagine how confused they were. Jesus is being taken away and Jesus is like, yes, this is supposed to happen. And they're like, but, and they can't accept it. They can't accept it because they didn't understand the scriptures. So fulfilling the scriptures here is not the same as fulfilling clear, specific predictions of the scriptures. It's bigger than that, right? So the fulfilling of prophecy is um, like clear, specific predictions. That's good evidence for Jesus, right? But the fulfillment of the scriptures in general where, where Jesus gives a big sweeping statement here, he's talking about all kinds of stuff. He's talking about stuff in Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and clear prophecies in Isaiah and Psalm 22. But he's also talking about how, um, you know, Isaiah's whole kind of ministry sort of typologically represents Jesus Christ and what he would go through and how Jeremiah and his rejection would sort of represent Jesus, even though the text didn't say that Jeremiah represented Jesus in that. It's just all of the above. It's the whole spectrum. That's what's in view here. So again, we have like Isaiah 52. Jesus is going to be killed as a sacrificial atonement for our sins. He's going to bear our iniquities. Um, Psalm 22, it's going to talk about how Jesus will die by crucifixion specifically. Um, Daniel 9 is going to talk about the timing of when this stuff is going to happen. Those are specific prophecies. But then we have all of the above. Does that make sense? Do you guys see it's a tapestry Um that's being woven and some threads are very clear and some threads are more like you zoom out and you see it. And um, yeah. Now let's take you to a very controversial passage, which took me a great deal of time to prepare for. And I blame you. Matthew 27, Matthew 27, verse three. This is a passage where the, the skeptics or the critics will often challenge the Bible with error. They will say, Matthew is just wrong here. This is not only not about Jesus, but he literally quotes the Bible wrong. And so we're going to get into that. Um, it says, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed and went and hanged himself. But, and there's a dilemma, the chief priest taking the pieces of silver said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. The money had to be spent. They wouldn't be associated with the temple, so they just buy a field. We'll just bury strangers there. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled, there's that word fulfilled, what had been spoken by the, by the prophet Jeremiah, remember he says who? Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. There's a few issues to be resolved. First issue, for the most part, he is not quoting Jeremiah, he is quoting Zechariah. And to the accusation is Matthew quotes Zechariah and says it's Jeremiah and that's an error in your Bible and therefore you know Christianity explodes and your faith dies and you should abandon your faith in Christ actually I'm always surprised at how quickly some people are willing to abandon their trust in Christ because of one thing they don't understand um, but let me quickly resolve this issue if this has shaken your faith this one he says Jeremiah I thought he should have said Zechariah but oh I'm not a Christian anymore like if that's you you've got other issues going on but I will try to answer this for you, right? Um, there is a common, right, and accepted Jewish practice where you quote two passages of scripture or more and you only mention one name. 
Mark does this in one case, right, where he quotes two prophets and he just mentions one. Now, there's two ways in which you would do this. You would either mention the most, like, prominent prophet. Like, say I quote from Isaiah and I quote from Hosea. And then I mention Isaiah's name because he's the more dominant prophet. Everyone knows him. And so then I give credit to Isaiah for both prophecies. But it's understood that there's two different prophets in mind. The other um, also more commonly common way of doing it is I quote from two prophets and I give the name of the more obscure passage so you won't miss that I'm quoting from two prophets. And that's what Matthew does here. He quotes from Jeremiah, well, really references Jeremiah, quotes Zechariah, and he slightly changes Zechariah to draw your attention to where in Jeremiah he's talking about. Yes, it's complicated, but I'm going to try to explain it for you today. So that that was an accepted thing. Um, Basically, he says Jeremiah instead of Zechariah because he doesn't want you to miss the Jeremiah passage that we're about to get into. But first, let's talk about um, uh, the other thing he did. He adds potter's field, right? They gave them for the potter's field. The Zechariah quote is going to refer not to a potter's field, but simply to a potter, just a potter. And he adds the word field there. That's what connects us to Jeremiah. So now we're connecting. Where's a potter's field? That's the Jeremiah passage. Now you're like, well, he didn't quote the Bible word for word. Well, actually, very frequently, New Testament authors don't quote. Sometimes they quote word for word. Sometimes they quote two passages and smash them together. Sometimes they paraphrase a passage. And it's in quotes in your New Testament because quotes didn't exist back then. And your translators like, when do I use quotes and when do I not use quotes? It doesn't exactly work super easily all the time. Sometimes it's complicated. So you have to look at each individual quote thoughtfully. All right, let's get into this one a little more. Um, Zechariah 11 is the passage he's quoting. So um, the context of Zechariah 11 is this. Earlier in Zechariah, the prophet is, is taken to be like typological of the Messiah. This is already established Jewish commentary. In chapter 3 and chapter 6, Zechariah is referred to as the branch. But, but in chapter 3, it's, it feels like it's about Zechariah. In chapter 6, it seems to be about Messiah very specifically. So we see this sort of, he himself is typological of Messiah. We see that. Um, and then in Zechariah 11, Zechariah is told to become a shepherd. Now, he's not a shepherd. God wants him to do this for a specific reason. So he becomes a shepherd and he gets a flock, but God tells him the flock is destined for slaughter. Who do you think the flock represents? Israel. Yeah, that's easy, right? <laughs> Israel. So he's like, you're going you're gonna to go and be the shepherd for the flock. They're destined for slaughter. That's what's going to happen. And he becomes the shepherd. And in Zechariah 11, he removes three bad shepherds that he gets rid of. And I mean, if I had to give a typological, I would think the Sadducees, the Pharisees, and the, um, uh, what was the other group? I had it in my brain. The Sanhedrin. Yeah. So you've got, you've got these sort of leaders of Israel, these groups that are leaders of Israel that he removes. Um, so he removes the bad shepherds, but in Zechariah eleven eight, it says, I became impatient with them and they also detested me. And this may be a reference to the flock because right after that, he says, that's it. I quit. I will not be your shepherd anymore. You're destined for slaughter. I came and I was a good shepherd for you. You were, you rejected me. You detested me. Fine. I'm out of here. And so he takes his two staves, which are called union and favor, and they're symbolic and he breaks them. So God's favor broken, no longer on Israel. The union of Israel that God gives them broken. They no longer have that. And when he breaks the staff called favor, that's where we get our passage that Matthew is talking about. So Zechariah 11.10. And I took my staff, favor, and I broke it, annulling the covenant that I'd made with all the peoples. Okay, so this is obviously about more than just a, sh- a sheep fold, right? This is a symbolic of God saying covenant is broken. So it was annulled on that day, and the sheep traders who were watching me knew that it was the word of the Lord. Then I said to them, If it seems good to you, give me my wages, but if not, keep them. And they weighed out my wages, 30 pieces of silver. Now he's basically saying, I've been the shepherd, now just pay me for what I've done. And so they weigh out 30 pieces of silver. And this is where we get that whole Judas connection, 30 pieces of silver. Verse 13 is written very carefully. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. So I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord, to the potter and he takes them and it's and now jewish commentators um they work hard to understand this passage and even the most famous ones are like i don't know what this is about so they're like the 30 pieces of silver it represents 
30 righteous Jews. The 30 pieces of silver represents God's 30 commands to the Gentiles. Like they're just guessing. They have no idea what this means. It turns out it was much more literal than they had realized. In Jesus' time, it gets fulfilled. The wording of it's really interesting. It makes it sound in verse 13. Now, he's just getting paid for his job, but it makes it sound in verse 13 two things. One, it makes it sound like he's getting paid for, it's, it's being paid for him, like he's being purchased. It says, the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. And it's a mockery, lordly, because it's actually a low price that they paid for him. And he goes, and he, but it makes it sound like it was, he was priced. But the other thing is, the wording of it almost makes it sound like God is being purchased. The Lord said to me, throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. It almost sounds like the Lord. It's just like, what exactly is going on in this passage? So Jewish commentators just scratch their heads. We don't know what this means. It makes total sense in relation to Judas, though, doesn't it? Um, so because the shepherd is being purchased now. And then the, um, the potter's field, right? That word field, this is Matthew recognizing its fulfillment after the fact because he sees Judas throw the money into the temple. They use it to buy the potter's field. Now, when you buy the potter's field, where does the money go? To the guy that owned the field, which would be the potter, right? So the money went to the potter to purchase his field. Matthew's just recognizing fulfillment. And he's also pointing us to Jeremiah, which we'll come to in a minute. But let me now give you um, a... Just a quick list of the correlations, why we see Zechariah and Judas, what Judas did as an actual fulfillment thing and not just Matthew hijacking a passage that said 30 pieces of silver. So as Zechariah was told to become a shepherd, so Jesus was the good shepherd. And Zechariah was previously typological of Messiah in the very book we're reading. As Zechariah was rejected by the sheep and lost his patience with the sheep, that's it, I'm done. So Jesus, in the passage we just read, he's like, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the one who stones the prophets and kills those who are sent to her. And he's like, that was it. You missed the time of your visitation. As Zechariah was priced at 30 pieces of silver, and it makes it sound like it was a purchase price for him, not just a payment, Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. As the money was thrown into the temple, but it was for the potter, which is so confusing, right? Judas, he throws the money back into the temple, and the money goes to the potter to purchase his field. As judgment came to the sheep afterwards, because after this happens, God's judgment, they're for the slaughter, they're judged. So judgment came upon Jerusalem after they rejected Messiah and it was destroyed. So it's a mixture here of direct fulfillment and typology. They're both mixed together. Do you see how it's a tapestry? It's a thoughtful weaving that God is doing here. And I'm just reading the text. I'm just reading the text and letting it correlate. Um, interestingly enough, commentators look at these things and they go, because of the way it's written by Matthew, because it doesn't perfectly line up with Zechariah, and because of the connection to Jeremiah, um, I'll, I'll spare you the whole argument here, but basically scholars go, we have good reason to think Matthew really is telling us a historical story that, Zechari that happened with uh, Judas and the money and the potter's field, that that happened, and then Matthew's now looking back at the Old Testament going, hey, and Matthew kind of like us is discovering it after the fact. So there's good historical reasons the way it's written to, to boost the historicity case of what happened with Judas. Now let's look at Jeremiah. So how does this relate to Jeremiah? And here's where the, the big debate is. Um, here's a summary of Jeremiah um, 18 to get you up to Jeremiah 19. That's where we're going to be, Jeremiah 19. In Jeremiah 18, Jeremiah is told to go to the potter's house. This is the first time potter comes up here in Jeremiah. So we immediately get our attention on there because that's the connection between the two passages. Zechariah and Jeremiah is the word potter. So he goes and he's looking at the potter. He's working at the wheel. And the potter, um, something's wrong with the clay and it's still wet. So it gets marred in the hands of the potter. So he just smashes it down and he reshapes it into a new vessel. And God's message to Israel is, hey, you've rebelled against me. I'm going to mar you. I'm going to mash you down, but I'm going to rebuild you. Israel rejects that. They reject God's words to his people. So they reject Jeremiah and his words, and they then plot to kill him in Jeremiah 18 after he tells them about the potter. They plot to kill him. Now something different happens. So God tells him in Jeremiah 19 verse 1, no longer will there be this soft moldable clay that can be reshaped. It says, thus says the Lord, go buy a potter's earthenware flask and take some of the elders of the people and some of the elders of the priests. And go out to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the potsherd gate and proclaim there the words that I tell you. So he's going to take them 
elders and priests with him to purchase this piece of pottery. Not soft, moldable clay, but a hard piece of pottery. And he's going to go out with them to the, to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the Potsherd Gate. Now, the Potsherd Gate is a gate in the south section of the Jerusalem Wall at this time. It led to the Valley of Hinnom. So they would go out the gate right to that very valley that we're talking about. And this was the potter's field. The gates were named for practical reasons. The sheep gate was where they would literally sell sheep. Right? The potter's gate led to the potter's field. The field where pottery could be disposed of. Pot shards could be disposed of. You, you could throw it away there. There was a big litter problem back in the day with pottery shards. In fact, if you're doing archaeology, they find pottery everywhere. It was like, it was like the straws of the day. Um, <laughs> the plastic bags of the day. So here you were allowed to dispose of, of pottery shards. So he gets the pottery, he takes them out to that location. Now this valley um, has multiple names. Uh, it's called the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, or it's called the Valley of Tophet. Same place, just two different names. And God tells them that he's going to wreck Jerusalem. And this valley, this is the prophecy to the leaders of Israel, this valley, this location, will be the place where they are routed and destroyed. So there, Jeremiah takes the pottery. Now he's got the leaders of Israel and he's in front of this field and he smashes it on the ground. No longer can Israel be like marred and reshaped. No, no, no. I'm going to break you. Right? You rejected my rebuke. I'm breaking Israel. So there he breaks the vessels of uh, the vessel of pottery and he proclaims that God's going to break Jerusalem just like that because they rejected what God was going to tell them to do. In the same sense, Jesus came, right? He says, repent, come to me. Yeah, you'll be broken down, but I'll rebuild you, so to speak. But because they reject him, they're just broken. So in Jeremiah 19, verse 5, let's read what it says. So um, uh, here's the criticisms that God has of why he's going to destroy Jerusalem in Jeremiah's day. And have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place shall no more be called the Valley of Topheth or the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, but the Valley of Slaughter. It'll have a new name. It won't be the potter's location. It'll be the Valley of Slaughter. And in this place, I will make void the plans of Judah and Jerusalem. And will cause their people to fall by the sword before their enemies. And by the hand of those who seek their life, I will give their dead bodies for food to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the earth. And I will make this city a horror and a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all its wounds. And I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters. And everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their life afflict them. This this prophecy about eating flesh, it's not what some people think. It's not, oh, I'm going to make you guys become cannibals. Rather, there'll be a siege and they'll starve to death. And those who die first will end up being the only food that there is. God is not saying this is a good thing. He's saying this is a bad thing. This is how bad things will become. You'll actually have to do this. You'll resort to this to stay alive. Verse 10. Then you shall break the flask in the sight of the men who go with you. Breaks the, the flask. And shall say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, so I will break this people in this city as one breaks a potter's vessel so that it can never be mended. Men shall bury in Topheth because there will be no place else to bury. Thus I will do to this place, declares the Lord, and to its inhabitants, making this city like Topheth. <clears throat> so. How does this relate to Jesus, right? The Zechariah prophecy is very different than the Jeremiah one. If he hadn't said the prophet Jeremiah, you wouldn't even have looked for this. You would have just looked at Zechariah and like, that's the whole fulfillment. Zechariah had like a one-to-one fulfillment, a lot of it, but it was also had some typological elements. Jeremiah is very typological or analogical or, you know, Dolby digital, you know, surround sound logical. It's, it's got a, a different kind of vibe to it, the Jeremiah prophecy. So let me just connect to you. Uh, some ways in which the Jeremiah statement connects to Jesus. It's directly and initially about the fall of Jerusalem when Babylon comes in and destroys it in the time of Jeremiah. How is it like Jesus, though? Well, as Judas threw the money to the priests and leaders of the people, and the priests and leaders of the people go and they buy the field, and then Judas dies there, um, so it's the priests and the elders, the priests and the same people, the priests and leaders of the people, who go with Jeremiah to buy the pottery. So they go to, to purchase the pottery. As Judas's money went to the potter for his field, Jeremiah's money went to the potter for his pottery. These are just, this is not one-to-one. These are um, analogical, typological connections. As the New Testament field became a place of blood, a field of blood, and then became a cemetery 
for strangers. That's what happened with this field that Judas' Judas's money purchased. So Topheth became the Valley of Slaughter. So they both get new names. Field of Blood, Valley of Slaughter. And Topheth, they would bury till there was no place left to bury. So it became a cemetery as well. So we have both of these places become cemeteries. Both fields were formerly associated with potters. Both fields have new names that connote bloodshed. Valley of Slaughter, Field of Blood. Um, could the money going to the house of the Lord for the potter's field, could that be foreshadowing the destruction of the temple like pottery? Could, could it be? I know this stuff's a little confusing because it's complica- complicated stuff. Could it be, right? Jeremiah is standing there with the leaders of Israel. And he says, because you rejected me, because you rejected what God was doing through me, God's going to break you and this whole place is going to be destroyed. And so now another valley of blood that becomes a cemetery there foreshadows the fact that Jerusalem is also going to be destroyed, meaning that Israel's going through some cyclical stuff. You keep rejecting God's people and God keeps judging you for it. You reject the son, just like in Jeremiah's day, the Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple itself was destroyed. So now Jerusalem and the temple will also be destroyed in the times of Jesus. So the connection is not exactly literal in Jeremiah. It's more a typology thing. Here I would say Matthew just knows the Old Testament better than us. So he not only mentions Zechariah, the clear prophecy, but he draws us to Jeremiah so we can see the typological statement that's there as well. Um, I remember when we went to Israel and when our guide at one point, uh, someone picked up a piece of pottery. There, there is everywhere out there. He picked a piece of pottery and they held it up and they showed it to the guy and they were like, when is this from? And he, he just like shouts out like, oh, that's from like 200 AD. Or something, and I and I just like I was like, it's this little tiny piece of, and I just like laughed. I was like, yeah, that's ridiculous. He does not know that, and he like overheard me, which is really a bummer. And um, and he turns and he was like, no, actually, I was on archaeological digs and I've studied archaeology. And number one way in which archaeologists identify dates is using pottery because there's different forms of pottery, different styles of 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 making pottery, and it changes pretty reliably over time. So you can, and I realized pretty quickly. The problem wasn't that he didn't know what he was talking about. It was that I didn't know what he was talking about. <laughs> and um, now this was this was two thousand like five, I think it was. So I'm I'm you know I, I, now that I know everything, um, I'll never make a mistake like that again. But I think the point here though is sometimes you think, oh, Matthew's just misusing the Old Testament, and I just got to say like sometimes people know as much about the Old Testament as I did about pottery. Right? And I look at it and go, how could that tell you all that? And I'm like, well, how many hours have you spent studying this? How much thought have you put into this? Matthew has a variety of ways, and so does the New Testament, in which it uses the old. Clear one-to-one fulfillment, typological fulfillments, more an- analogies, and just saying, hey, just like it happened here, it's happening over here. It's just drawing out like, hey, look at that. It's like a Jesus in the Old Testament thing. And there's a variety of ways, and so we need to be aware of these things. Fulfilled scripture is a spectrum. It's a spectrum. Clear one-to-one fulfillment, double fulfillment in some cases, typological fulfillment, and analogical fulfillment. Um, But fabrication is not on the spectrum. That's the important thing to realize. Making stuff up, not okay. And that's not what they do. They simply do not do that. it's now not every prophecy is not the best for witnessing. I wouldn't say give someone 300 prophecies of Jesus. How about you give them three? I mean, how many do they need? Like how many times does God have to tell us ahead of time about Jesus for it to be compelling to you? I I don't know if it needs to be 300. Um, But there are 300. The point is there are different kinds of prophecies and that's why they're not all useful for the same thing. Sometimes it's good for proving the truthfulness of the Bible. Sometimes it's just explaining it to you so you can understand it better. So a casual look at the text can be tricky. And some teachers casually look at the text, and you'll hear it out of their mouths, where they say things like, well, that's not really what that passage meant in the Old Testament, but you know, it's the inspired writers, so they're allowed to do that. And personally, I've never been satisfied with that answer. I'm like, I think God is rational. (laughs) I think that there's a deeper reasoning going on here. Um, So uh, hopefully we can realize just this. Um, As we continue doing our Jesus in the Old Testament, we cover a variety of these things. Personally, I'm going to focus more on the tapestry of things. That's the, that's what I'm focusing on because I feel like the clear fulfillments are easier to find and discover, and that's for a different s- series. This is going to be about the tapestry, but it has to be legit. It's got to be in the text. It's got to be something God really gave us and not something I'm making up. And that's my intention uh, because I really believe the Bible is much deeper than us. 
and smarter than us. But the beautiful thing there is, as much as you do invest in it, and as much as you can invest in it, you will get that much out. So we'll continue doing, at least for a little while, our Jesus in the Old Testament series and seeking to see the tapestry that's in the scriptures, to stay faithful to what God has originally written, not to fabricate, but to discover. So let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, challenging but really good stuff. We pray, Lord, that we would just at least realize um, that there's often more there than what we see and more there to discover than what we have so far learned. And we pray that you would stir up within us a sense of awe as it, as it comes to reading the scriptures, that we would realize how much is there to, to, to know, how deep it is, how thoughtful it is. And we pray that you give us the ability, Lord, to rightly divide the scriptures, to thoughtfully and correctly understand what you're doing and what you're saying in the text of scripture, that we would discover Jesus um, as you have embedded the truths of Christ throughout the Bible. We just discover that more and more and more. And we pray, Lord, for the church around the world, that there would just be more and more attention and appreciation uh, to Jesus throughout the scriptures. In Jesus' name, amen.